Okay, our passage comes from John 17, verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, we're going to continue our um, series on Summer of the Spirit. This is a series that we're looking at what life with the Holy Spirit looks like, what life with God looks like. And today we're going to be talking about unity by the Spirit. And this is absolutely intentional that we chose this day to talk about this aspect of life in the Spirit. Today is the 4th of July, and we are celebrating the United States of America. And it honestly, I mean, if we could just shoot it straight, it, there's some strange feelings about that because it's strange to feel like you're celebrating unity when it doesn't necessarily feel that united everywhere. Even this day struggles to bring us together. There will be some people today that your spine's going to stand up straight and your eyes are going to start to tear as soon as you hear the chorus of proud to be an American. And there are others still that will be throwing things at those people because they're listening to that song. It's a little strange time that we're living in. The last year and a half has actually been really hard on unity, I think. And what's broken my heart personally is not just the disunity in the world or the disunity in our nation, but the disunity in the church of Jesus. We've not been immune to this um, biting that's been going on and lobbing bombs online and losing or severing friendships with people. I, we, we met together with the elders of Radiant Church, and we prayed for both communities. It was Good Friday, and we took communion, and we were sharing kind of the heaviness of the year and also kind of what we're celebrating with resurrection life in the year. And um, I just wept um, talking about what I saw in the church between brothers and sisters over the year and a half like the, the universal church, but also our church, what I witnessed go on inside of relationships. And I, I felt a little like silly, actually, like how much I cried <laughs> that night in front of these people. Um, and I don't think it was because I have like some kind of perfect connection or unity with God, and so I get it, and nobody else does. I don't think that's true. What I think God was doing was allowing me to feel just a little bit of what he feels when his kids behave the way that we sometimes do. One thing that's kind of brought me a little bit of encouragement in a sick way is that this has been true for every generation of the church. Since the beginning of the church, there has been problems with uniting Every, every epistle or letter to a church in the New Testament addresses some kind of form of disunity that's happening. The church in Philippi 
in Corinth, in Ephesus. All of these churches are just at war with each other, and there's constantly correction that's coming. There's a book that I read recently from Francis Chan. It's called Until Unity. It's a really easy read. It feels like you kind of just, he put his journal out there with some thoughts about unity. But this is what he points out in this book. We are currently, right now, Christians, the most divided faith group on earth, and there isn't a close second. Name another religion with more than two or three factions. We have thousands of denominations and ministries, each believing their theology or methodology is superior. The saddest part of this is that our Savior was crucified to end our divisions. He commands us to be united and says that we will impact the world when we become one. Unity is something that the world is crying out for, longing for, desiring, marching for, shouting for. But the world's cries honestly sound a little bit more like uniformity than unity. And so like everything here in this family at Radiant, we look to Jesus to give us the clearest picture on how we actually obtain unity. If we want to know what true unity looks like, we have to look at the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What was just read in John chapter 17 is Jesus saying, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I'm in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. The subject of unity is actually not just like another subject to talk about. It's not just like, oh, it's cute, it worked out on the 4th of July to talk about this. We're actually going to talk about this again next week as well because it, it was actually just so big in getting ready for it. It just, we needed two weeks on this pursuit of unity. This is actually a life plea and a death decree of Jesus. This was his prayer before he was going to the cross. And I think that part of the problem with pursuing unity is if we just pursue unity, I don't actually believe that we can obtain unity. It's a lot like if you pursue joy. As soon as you grab hold of joy, it's like, boom, gone. It's so elusive. It's such a slippery fish that you just can't seem to hold on to it. And I believe it's the same thing with unity. If we just pursue it, I don't know if we're actually going to get it. What I do believe is this. I believe we get unity when we pursue Jesus. Just like I believe you get joy when you pursue Jesus, unity is a byproduct. It's a fruit of life lived, surrendered to Jesus. So if unity is going to be something that we obtain as a church, something that we display, then it's only going to be found in our pursuit of Christ and not our pursuit of just being one with each other. So today I want to offer just a, a few things, uh, a few roads to unity that really is just following the way of Jesus. Jesus has marched out. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And our pursuit of unity has to fall in line with his way. We have to follow Jesus into prayer, into humility, into union with him, and into mission. Today we're just going to scratch the surface on the first two of those, but if we're going to follow Jesus into unity, we're going to have to follow him on the path of prayer. 
John 17 is not a sermon. John 17 is not a motivational speech. John 17 is a prayer from Jesus to his Father. Jesus is dependent upon God the Father to make this happen. Did you catch that? If Jesus is dependent and asking for unity to come and be made, how much more should we be doing the exact same thing? There is power in prayer. And this is why I believe Jesus' disciples, when they were with him, they asked him, teach us to pray. Matthew 6 and and Luke 11, they come to him. And they could ask any kind of tips and pointers. They want to know how to pray like he prays because his prayer life results in something phenomenal. And he teaches us to pray. He doesn't shirk it off. He moves right in. Sets up the lesson, the demonstration of it. And in that, we actually get a bit of a lesson on unity. What's the very first thing he teaches us to pray? Our Father. You can't say our Father without being mindful of all the other kids that God has. Our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The posture of this kind of prayer, when we focus on we and not just me, it will rewire us for unity. When we pray, we're not twisting God's arm to give us something. You're not like doing the right formula to get something from God. When we pray, what's actually happening is the Holy Spirit is twisting our hearts to beat in sync with God's heart. We begin to pray and ask and desire what God wants and desires. Unity comes by asking. It comes by prayer. How much energy have we invested in conversations, social media posts, dinners, YouTube videos, learning and defending our positions? How many blogs and articles have we read describing our side or the other side? How much time have we spent picking others apart? How much time have we spent with people just like us talking about people who aren't like us? And how much time have we spent in prayer asking for unity? Asking Jesus to make us one for the sake of our witness. How much time have we invested in that in this last year? As you pray, as we pray, our hearts begin to grow for who or what we're praying for. You don't love Tulare? Begin to pray for Tulare. You will start to love Tulare. You have an issue with somebody in your family? Begin to pray for them, and your heart will grow for them. You may not be BFFs and get matching tattoos, but your heart will grow for them. You don't just pray for what you have a heart for. You pray for what you need a heart for. This is how Jesus said to deal with our enemies. You don't talk about them. You pray for them. Why? Because we have an issue. We have a heart issue. And it needs to expand and grow beyond our preference and our hurt. Prayer may not change what God's going to do. It may not change God's mind. Prayer may not change other people that we're praying for. Prayer may not change the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but it is sure to change 
us. If we're going to see unity happen, we have to follow Jesus into prayer. And to pray actually is to humble ourselves and admit that we don't have what we need. If we follow Jesus into prayer, we've also got to follow him into humility. I believe that Jesus was the most attractive person to ever live on earth. And I don't believe it was mainly because he was so powerful and did amazing miracles. I believe it actually was because he was so humble. Philippians 2, 5, 11. This isn't on the screen. Hopefully it's on my phone. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father. This is Jesus, the most humble man to ever live, and we are called to walk in his way. Jesus actually said that the world was going to know us and know that we're his followers by the way that we love each other. And I fear that we may think as Christians our main job is actually to straighten out everybody else's crooked stick. When really God said your main job, your main calling in life is boiled down to two things. Love God and love others. It is that simple. At the risk of sounding like I didn't have time to sermon prep, it is that simple. And the moment we begin to complicate that is the moment we begin to move away from unity with God and move away from unity with each other. If our relationship with God is robotic and surface level, you can bet your bottom dollar that our love for each other will be the exact same way. When love is shallow, it actually just takes something really trivial like disagreeing on something to create division among us. That's what happens when our love is shallow. If humility is the road to unity that we're on, then pride is the roadblock to unity. Pride is one of our greatest enemies. God hates it because it hurts us. It severs things in our life. Pride doesn't always show up like thinking that we're better than other people. Pride can actually manifest and often does in thoughts more like this. No one really gets it like I get it. Or no one really cares like I care. If you are sitting in this tent and thinking that you don't have anything to learn from the people that you're worshiping next to. The roots of pride are beginning to take root inside, and there will be a division. It will be impossible 
to actually unite to God and to each other as his church. We've got to remain students. That's our job. None of us are graduating to master level. Even those who have beautiful gray hair have not graduated beyond being a student of our master, Jesus Christ. And Jesus works through his spirit in everyone who's been filled by him. We can learn something and should learn something from everyone who's in the family. See, I think that the aim of John the Baptist has actually got, be, got, to, got to become our aim. John the Baptist says this in John chapter 3, He must increase, but I must decrease. Did you catch that? It's not enough just for Jesus to increase. It's not enough just to add a little Jesus into your life. It's not enough to just add a little church or a little religion into your already good life to make it even better. No, simultaneously, I must decrease to give way to his increase. This is a both and moment. Simply put, this means... We've got to get over ourselves. This is the invitation and call of Jesus. Get over yourself. We are the greatest roadblock to unity. With God and with each other. See, the world is actually in the discipleship business too. Jesus is not the only one who's interested in discipling, making people followers. The world is hell-bent on making followers of their way as well. And the world's actually spoon-feeding us every day in really pity, pretty ways and really subtle ways, but they're trying to actually get us addicted to their ways. They're trying to get us addicted to individualism and being right and being strong. These are the ways of the world. They're contradictory to the ways of Jesus, actually. And the world just keeps feeding us these things every day, just so subtly. And we just kind of take it as it comes. And we have to fight the addiction of individualism. This is what it looks like inside of the world. It looks like this. You be you. You be the truest version of yourself that you can be. In fact, just if you have to get rid of the commitments that you've made in life, like your marriage or your kids or your job or your career or your health, then you do that in pursuit of you being you because you deserve to be happy, because you deserve to self-actualize, because you deserve to just grow up into the best version of yourself. And nothing should stand in your way. This is the way of the world. And it's kind of attractive. And it actually, in the church, when it starts to leak into this, the way it shows up is that your faith is your faith. You believe what you believe. It's just you and Jesus. The problem with both of these is that there's fragments of truth in both of them. You are extremely unique. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You should be who you were created to be. The problem is you don't know who you were created to be outside of a relationship with your creator. You have no idea. I have no clue. I don't have an owner's manual for this. I'm making it up, and it's causing a lot of pain in myself and other people the more I go on just ratcheting on things in life. 
you should have a personal relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. But you are one of millions of kids of his. And you won't actually have a great relationship with him unless you have a good relationship with his whole family. We've got to fight against this addiction of individualism. We also have to fight against this addiction of being right. Whoo, boy. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What the Bible is teaching us, what God is imparting into us, is that we can't see everything. You cannot be right about everything and every subject. You cannot be on top of all of it. In fact, what he's saying, and this is like really weird, and I'm glad he said it and not me. I'm just telling you, is that at your best day, it's dimly lit, your understanding of life with him and with other people. There will come a day when the full radiance of God is here among us again and setting all things right, praise be to God. Until then, we're looking in sheet metal in a dark room. And that's why we need the light of Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of us to actually illuminate what is true and what's in front of us. We have to fight the addiction of being strong. Again, 1 Corinthians 4, or 1 Corinthians 1.27, instead... God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. We can invest so much time in being strong, just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. These are all connected, as most addictions are. They just all feed each other. You be you. You can do it. Find your inner child. Find your inner phoenix and rise above the ashes. Whatever that means. Find the grace of Jesus Christ and become born again to be who you were intended to be. One among millions and millions and millions of people declaring the holiness and the beauty of God. Living in unity with Him and those who are singing his praises side by side. We're not going any further than this today because we can't go further unless we address these things. So here's what I want to do. I want to just pause. I want to take a moment to be still and reflect on some questions. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes I'm going to ask some questions, and then I'm going to give an uncomfortably amount of silence so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you. Whatever way you can best reflect and give ear to God, do that. Here's the questions. Do these Addictions exist in your life. Does the desire for individualism, being right, and being strong exist in your life? If you said no immediately, there is a good chance you are wrong. 
Do you believe that you are the most important thing in your world? Are you constantly defending yourself or correcting others? Do you believe that you have to be strong to be great?